The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space celebrating tenure through the community. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Everybody. And welcome to this webinar on interdisciplinarity in times of crisis, why the arts and humanities and social sciences matter. My name is Jane Olmeyer, and I am Professor of Modern History at Trinity College Dublin. I'm the director of the Trinity Long Room Hub, and I am the principal investigator on Shape ID. Uh, I'd like to say a word or two about Shape ID. Um, it's a project funded by the European Commission under the Horizon 2020 Framework pro uh, Programme to address the challenge of integrating the arts, humanities, and social sciences in interdisciplinary and transdisciplinary research. The project is led by the Trinity Long Room Hub with partners at ETH Zurich, Isanova in Rome, the University of Edinburgh, the Institute of Literary Research of the Polish Academy of Sciences and Dr. Jack Spatman. Uh, I'm joined here in Ireland with our project manager, uh, uh, Darren Wallace. Uh, so uh, lovely to see you online, Darren. And if the technology lets us down, which I hope it won't, uh, Darren will take over as uh, uh, the chair uh, uh, of this session. We're halfway through our Shape ID project. We've just uh, published the results of Work Package 2, which included a systematic review of academic and policy literature and a survey with interdisciplinary researchers. We'll share the link for these outputs, which include several reports and a policy brief, and we hope to organise another webinar to discuss our findings in the near future. We've also completed three of six learning case workshops with researchers, funders, policymakers and other stakeholders. Uh, there was one in uh, Dublin, another in Edinburgh and one in Turin. And the one in Turin was literally uh, before um, uh, things turned particularly uh, dire in Italy uh, and obviously with the COVID-19 crisis we've had to postpone our three other learning case workshops until the autumn and it could well be that we'll have to hold those virtually. And this is one reason why we've decided to develop a webinar series so we can host a wider series of discussions around interdisciplinarity and arts, humanities, social sciences uh, integration. So it's lovely to see so many of you here in our Zoom room um, and others that are joining us on Facebook uh, Live. Uh, over 240 people registered for, for, for the webinar, which just shows you uh, uh, the level of interest. And obviously we're delighted so many people have. People have registered from all over Europe, Scandinavia, Central and Eastern Europe, Southern Europe, and also from the United States. We're delighted to see participants from a number of uh, very prominent organizations, the International Science Council, the Coimbra Group, the Guild, the, Bed, uh, the Belgian Federal Science Office, Science Gallery Dublin, uh, the Irish Museum of Modern Art and the Irish Research Council. And I do want to give a special plug to the Irish Research Council because I'm the chair of this fantastic funding agency and Dan is a, a, a member of uh, council, but you're all extremely welcome. Uh, we're also delighted to see people that we have been collaborating with on the Shape ID project and members of our expert panel who are with us. So thank you very, very much in uh, indeed for, for joining us. So a few words about the format. 
We are live streaming on Facebook. We're also recording the webinar to share um, uh, our discussions with those who couldn't be here, and that will be podcast on our website. Um, we've invited each of our panelists to speak for nine minutes and not longer because we really want to have a, a Q&A from the audience. Uh, you can submit your questions uh, through the Q&A function at the bottom of your screen and I'll go through the questions and we'll obviously try and get through as many as we possibly can. Um, it's really lovely if you ask a question, if you can actually say who you are and where you're uh, zooming in from. Uh, and those of you who are on Facebook, we'll also try and take uh, questions from you. Use the chat function, uh, please, not to ask questions, but to share materials and information. Um, uh, and what we'll do is at the end, we'll uh, simply copy everything that's in the chat function and we'll share it to everybody who has registered um, uh, for the Zoominar. Uh, our uh, webinar has been scheduled for 60 minutes, but given the level of interest, our panelists have kindly agreed to stay on for an extra 10 or 15 minutes. So if the questions are coming in thick and fast, um, obviously those of you who have to leave after an hour obviously do, but, but we would uh, uh, suggest that we could stay on for an extra 10 or 15 minutes. Okay now, over to uh, the business of the hour. Um, immediate responses to COVID-19, uh, 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 the COVID-19 crisis have understandably tended to focus on funding uh, research that can fight the virus. Our panelists will discuss why it remains utterly essential to take seriously the perspectives coming from arts, humanities and social sciences uh, research in a time of crisis like this and how we can work to ensure real collaboration between these and other scientific approaches in understanding not just the COVID-19 uh, crisis but to help us prepare for the post-crisis world and as we use COVID-19 as a case study to explore more generally the power of inter and transdisciplinarity. I'm delighted to be um, joined by three amazing panellists this afternoon um, uh, and I'm going to introduce them in the order in which they'll speak. I'd like to begin with David uh, uh, Budst-Pedersen who is joining us from Aalborg University in Denmark. Uh, David is Professor of Science Communication and Director of the Humanomics Research Centre uh, at uh, Aalborg University. His research focuses on science communication, impact assessment and science and technology uh, policy. You're very welcome indeed, uh, uh, David. Our second panellist today is Gabby Lombardo, who joins us from Brussels. Gabby is Director of the European Alliance for Social Sciences and Humanities, which we all know as EASH. It's the largest advocacy and science policy organization for social sciences and humanities in Europe. Gabby is an expert in both higher education and global research policy and has extensive experience operating at the interface of strategy, science policy uh, and research support and funding. Um, Gabby will be talking about a new position paper that uh, EASH has just published and we'll make sure that that's available to everybody in the search function, I mean in the chat function, uh, just in case you haven't already seen it. So again, Gabby, you're very welcome indeed. Thank you uh, for joining us. And I'd like to turn now to our third panellist, who's Dan Carey, who's joining us from Galway in the west of Ireland. 
where I actually am as well. It's just down, down the road, two hours, I guess, is down the road in a global context. Uh, Dan is director of the Moore Institute uh, uh, for the Humanities and Social Sciences at NUI Galway and professor of English uh, in the School of English and Creative Arts. He's a vice president of the Royal Irish Academy and a member uh, uh, of the Irish Research Council. Uh, Dan has recently published a very insightful article on RTE Brainstorm. And again, we'll make sure that everybody gets sight of that uh, through the chat function. So on to business now, and David, over to you, please. Yeah, thank you. Uh, and uh, thank you for the invitation to, uh, to be here today. It's uh, a really inside, uh, in interesting uh, topic uh, that we have in front of us. And I would also like to thank the SHAPE uh, ID project for really raising these questions of being uh, truly interdisciplinary, both in times of crisis, but also in our everyday life as we move uh, forward in uh, science and research policy. Uh, for sure, the COVID-19 crisis has made it quite clear that the uh, interdisciplinary expertise is uh, more urgent than ever. Uh, unfortunately, a, um, a crisis like the one we are confronted with right now is not, uh, is not presenting itself in neat disciplines. It's a multi-dimensional, multidisciplinary challenge. I would even go so far to say that it's as much a communication emergency or a behavioral emergency as it is a medical crisis. Uh, so uh, alone from that uh, overall introductory perspective, I think we, we do really have to um, think carefully about how to get the perspective of all disciplines involved. Uh, some of the problems that we need to address and that social scientists and humanities uh, scholars are addressing these days are not only characterized by data or epidemiological models, but also by our cultural environment, our communicative skills, uh, our cognitive abilities. Uh, in which the crisis is unfolding. So the way we are adapting and the way we are addressing the crisis is uh, much related to our uh, intimate knowledge of the human factor and our social institutional life. So alone from that uh, standpoint, I think we have a lot to contribute. Um, it is, uh, as, as, as I said a moment ago, I, I don't think a crisis like this is as, as neat as we often like to think. It is not a well-ordered phenomenon. It, it, it might be actually a, quite a complex phenomenon with uh, society-wide uh, implications. And therefore, I think it's important that we are not being shy of, uh, of uh, including and integrating uh, research and expertise from a wider range of, of, uh, of disciplines. Uh, here I'm thinking about uh, understanding how contested values, uncertainties, decision-making, but also behavioral designs need to be part of the evidence that uh, informs government policy. Uh, I found a quote in preparation of today's uh, talk from uh, Dr. Patrick Wallens, who's the chief government science advisor in the UK these days. Uh, he gave a talk uh, last year called Why Science Matters for Policy. And in that talk, he mentioned that uh, quote, experts without knowledge about the behavioral and historical context in which policy change will happen is doomed to fail, um, end of quote. And I think that's a very strong uh, statement that we need to understand both the behavioral, social, and historical and cultural context in which the COVID-19 uh, crisis is unfolding in order to be able to address uh, solutions that are um, uh, robust and effective and that can really inform policymaking. 
So how does that look like? Uh, in my everyday life, I'm a professor of science communication, as was said in the introduction. We are doing research on the impact and communicative profile of uh, humanities and social sciences. And we've been quite curious uh, in the last couple of years to understand better how social sciences and humanities are contributing to what has been broadly labeled as science advice. So uh, we took the task of trying to survey how different science advisory bodies are actually uh, utilizing social sciences and humanities. And it is true and it's being reiterated again and again that often in science advisory processes and not least in a crisis and, uh, and in an emergency like the one we are confronted with right now, there is of course a very STEM heavy perspective. We need the health sciences, we need medical treatment, we need better vaccines, we need data science to do better test strategies. But it's also true that at the same time, we need to mitigate uh, the crisis from a behavioral point of view, using a lot of the insights that we gain from humanities and social sciences. And uh, it, it, it doesn't come as a surprise, but I think it's kind of an unfound um, uh, resource that a lot of these policy institutions, at least in their long-term policy declarations, actually do call for input uh, from the humanities and social sciences. Some of the principles and guidelines we have been looking at and surveying come from the European Commission's uh, communication on the collection and use of uh, expertise, also the UK government's principles of science advice, uh, the OECD's uh, guide on scientific advice for policymaking, and the US uh, National Academy uh, guidelines for using science as evidence in public uh, policymaking. And what we see across all these uh, principles and these kind of science advisory uh, designs are of course a focus on, uh, first of all, the independence of advice, the transparency of advice, and also the responsibility of researchers uh, providing advice. But then what we also find in this literature, and it actually cuts across a lot of the science advisory mechanisms that are set up both in Europe, in the UK and, and in the US, is also uh, an emphasis on diversity. And I think this is a quite useful uh, tool for the humanities and social sciences to insist upon. What many of these guidelines and white papers are emphasizing is diversity of actors, diversity of different disciplines, but also the diversity of beliefs and perspectives coming both, both from the social science and humanities, but also from stakeholder groups, from civil society, uh, and from uh, citizens in general. Uh, other than that, we also find other principles such as rigor and, and the demarcation of facts and values, uh, meaning basically that we need to become apt at uh, communicating our research in a way that is providing advice but not decisions to policymakers. But in the end of the day, I think a lot of these um, policy statements are emphasizing and inviting the input of humanities and social sciences. So that brings me to my last point, and that is what do we have to then provide in order to really uh, live up to that task, given uh, that you accept my initial statement here, or my hypothesis, that there is actually an invitation. I think we do have to uh, provide timely uh, and uh, rigorous uh, advice. It doesn't mean it has to come in the same way as evidence is emerging in epidemiology and health sciences that is basically by quantitative numbers and models. We need to become better at communicating also qualitative evidence, our interpretations, our critical work, 
uh, a lot of the stuff that is really characterized in the core values and the core, let's say, styles of reasoning within the humanities and social sciences also needs to come across, not as opinion, not as making things more complex than they already are, but as way of uh, bootstrapping policy making of actually providing insight, uh, perspective and analysis. If we are able to live up to that job as humanities and social scientists, I'm pretty sure that there is a huge need out there, at least in the current crisis, for really listening careful to the SSH disciplines. Thank you, David. That was absolutely cracking. Got us off to a great start. Thank you very much indeed. Really appreciate the insights there. Um, I hope people will be also engaging. I should have invited you on Twitter because I think some of the things that you're saying here, it'd be lovely to get a conversation going on social media. We'll put the handles in the chat function, but thank you very much, David. Thanks. Gabby, if I can turn to you now, uh, uh, we'd love to, to hear from you. Hi, thank you very much for inviting me. I'm quite happy to be here and uh, to talk, uh, and also so timing because we on just on Monday, we published this uh, paper, which is called uh, uh, Mission, Mission COVID-19. I mean, the, the European Commission funding have been talking about missions and I think COVID-19 show a completely different side of what a mission actually could be. And, uh, and the, the papers also uh, address the fact that the global problems need a really research portfolio approach. And uh, I just want to immediately just clarify what I mean, because I'm not 100% sure that I'm completely in line with what the European Commission talks about missions. So still working on, on the edge and working on the details on that. Um, as uh, um, David was saying earlier, we really need uh, the contribution of disciplines. I mean, we've been talking about a lot of interdisciplinary, a little bit like merging everything together. COVID-19 showcases so beautifully how as you need someone who's looking for a vaccine, you also need someone to understand what to do with that vaccine once we got it. And in fact, for example, for phase two, we are talking about once we have a vaccine, who needs it? Traditionally, what we do, uh, because doctors tell us to do that, we vaccinate the most vulnerable people, the ones who are mo most prone to take the disease. Actually, this is wrong. From the social sciences, now we understand that we, did, we do need the social network analysis because what we need is to defeat the hubs, to defeat those people who have lots of friends and family and colleagues and people to work with who have disseminated the virus across the world. So it's no point to sort of a focus our effort to an aging person living alone in his own flat with one visit a week, we need to focus the vaccine to those who actually have a multiple social networks. And so immediately you see how the speciality of certain type of disciplines come in to help to understand what would be best to do in a time of crisis in this case. All missions should have that approach. All missions should have that understanding that every science provides a certain degree of knowledge which is crucial to understand the problem. Energy, climate, all of them. But we need a perspective and we need to blend this perspective from 
a different point of view. It's a little bit, I was uh, joking yesterday with a colleague, a bit like doing a carpet. It's not if you have a very colorful thread that you do a picture. You need every thread into the picture to make the picture, to make the carpet. You don't just blend all together. A rainbow is no more beautiful because all the colors are bundled together, but because every color contributed to it. This is important to bear in mind. And this is what I mean with portfolio approach. Uh, the concept that came up about um, almost one and a half year ago when we, I was in a workshop for the evaluation of emissions. At the time, and nobody knew what these missions would have been in the European Commission narrative. So I went really excited to this workshop and we were about 20, 25 people around the table. For the first half an hour, we talked about key performance indicators, impact, and all sorts of other elements. And I just simply asked the question, so what is a mission? And the head of the unit said very transparently, said, well, it doesn't really matter what a mission is. We're only looking how to evaluate it. And the point is, yes, well, to a point, because one thing is to look at how to evaluate a mission which aims to clean plastic from the bottom of the sea. It might be very different how to evaluate a mission which aims to clear the bottom of the sea from bodies. And, you know, we've been in the middle of a migration crisis and we know that we, this is the type of research we deal with. And so contents are as important as <laughs> frameworks. And we need to focus on the fact that every discipline brings something to the table. It's a little bit like a building a house. Every bricks has a function, but a bricks can be used in different houses. Um, so this is the concept of the portfolio approach that we have in the paper. The paper is available to everybody on our website on the front page. And I have to say, um, I know we are 154 people by now in this, in this discussion, and I would like to actually um, turn a question that's been asked to me just after I published the paper. So the paper was published virtually on Monday morning, and I received a phone call from the European Commission on the same day. And they said, the congratulations, really good paper, very interesting, we're very happy to have it. Um, we're going to have some initiatives which will involve the, Europe, the social science humanity community. Is the community ready? Of course, I'm a, the director of the Alliance of Social Science Humanity, and I say, of course we are, we're ready to, to go. And we've been doing a database, we have just partnering as the Alliance with a database which is called the Worldwide Pandemic Research Network, which gathered together a number of projects which focus on COVID-19 or related issues. But are we ready? I mean, I'm sure that out of the 155, I'm talking to converters. There are loads of social science humanities colleagues, and I could see some names that they are recognized as you're popping in through the chat. Are we ready? That's the problem that we have. Are we ready? As, as Dave said correctly, are we prepared to provide our knowledge? Are we organized to do that? Not just at the local level. We're doing fantastic things about feeding local governments, for example, on very specific issues, water distribution, contribution, um, uh, license to operate. Um, but are we ready at the European level? which is what at this point matter. 
traditionally social science humanities from the perspective of policy making and science policy we hardly ever been the mainstream we, we kind of struggle well the reason being is, a, is an historical reason and um, for the last 60 years we had the same structure of the science system where actually as today i was looking at some data actually just this morning up to um, like for example in korea 70 percent of the funding for research and development come from the private sector and so Social science humanities kind of fall out of the mainstream bit because of obvious reasons. But we do provide the fantastic research. We do work on fantastic research. What we don't have is the showcase. What we don't have is to bundle together as a community, as a community of research to identify priority, for example, to showcase what we do. We miss a database of experts, believe it or not, the commission asks, who's doing what in where. And you know, I'm not the director of the Alliance, I should get this on my fingertips. And quite often I don't. Where are the experts for energy and behavior? Where are the experts for um, socializing to operate? I need to have that on my fingertips uh, because in that way we can actually provide experts where they are needed. We can target the topics that they are most needed to develop. We can target where the policymakers should make, should put the money. So, as Isha, as Alliance, we tend to talk with the policymakers about what the social science my research do. But we actually have a we bridge with the community. Quite often, this community has not been there when been asked for projects or ideas we need to be much more organized first and ready to provide information and it doesn't mean that every social science humanities scholar in, in europe or in the world has to work on policy priority but we need a community who's able to showcase highlight those they do those that have those responses ready those that have those projects ready so we need to build the tools and instruments like database of scholars, peer reviewers. We struggle enormously with identify peer reviewers. I have a community who knows itself. They know each other. When I work at the ERC in the panel for life science, within minutes, they knew each other. They knew who they were and where they, they are, they are, the person applying for that project, with that project was coming from, which lab, which uh, everything. But we don't. So. Okay, Gabby, Let's well, that, you've really thrown the gauntlet down there. Are we ready? Um, I hope that the answer is yes, but appreciate <laughs> the barriers. Um, we did a survey of uh, our own colleagues in Trinity about the expertise piece, and it was very interesting how there is this fundamental disconnect. There's lots of fundamental disconnects at, at both ends. Anyway, Gabby, we'll come back to lots of these issues in a moment. Uh, but thank you very much indeed for a great presentation. If we could turn now to Dan. Uh, Dan, over to you. Thank you, Jane, and thanks to Shape ID. Um, I, I very much enjoyed David and Gabby's uh, contributions there, so I'll try to complement that with some further thoughts. Um, one of my questions that I've been dwelling on is how is this story going to be told uh, in the future? And I'm very concerned that the humanities and social sciences will be left out of the story or they'll be treated as incidental to it. So one of our challenges is to uh, intervene in that narrative, to try to shape it as much as we can, 
and to use some of the uh, resources um, that have already been mentioned today and to draw them together, I think, in the practical manner that, that Gabby has suggested. I think we need a sociological imagination. We need a human imagination to address the current situation. And they, the way I would put it, drawing on a suggestion from a colleague of mine here in Galway, Nessa Cronin, is that we need an all of society response to an all of society problem. And it may be that we need to do a certain amount of uh, slogan generating in order to galvanize opinion in this space, if I can put it that way. I also want to make the argument that we, we, we we shouldn't engage in special pleading. I think that's often the position that we're placed in as uh, AHSS uh, people. That defensive posture weakens us. Uh, it's a continual challenge, but I think we should approach this in a bold way. And one of the ways to do it, I think, is simply to highlight the research questions and pressing issues that we think need to be addressed because they're compelling in themselves. So rather than saying who's in favor of social sciences and humanities research hands up and our hands go up and <laughs> others don't, we should really say what are the questions we need to be asking and to try to drive the agenda with that. Uh, there's a risk in general that we will repeat the same errors uh, once a vaccine is found and the crisis is over and declared and the victory has been won to use that common metaphor. Uh, but we'll simply find ourselves in the same position all over again the next time uh, a pandemic appears in a different form. It's one of the lessons of the current crisis, it seems to me, that um, we're lucky that this isn't Ebola. Um, Ebola is so much more lethal, um, but uh, it's really a reflection, I think, of a kind of racism of a sort deeply embedded that Ebola wasn't taken seriously uh, because it didn't spread largely to a large extent beyond Africa and beyond certain parts of West Africa. Um, one of the lessons of the current moment is that we uh, need to foster, I think, a social understanding of science. Um, it's interesting, particularly in the UK with their daily briefings, you know, we're following the science. <laughs> Just this absurdly naive notion as if science produced one answer. <clears throat> and I was interested in what uh, David was saying about uh, not trying to overcomplicate the picture, but that's an interesting burden that's deemed to be necessary for the humanities and the social sciences, but not for science in general. It's a kind of almost parodic version of how it works. But there's also questions which I think have come into major relief about how statistics are to be interpreted. Um, they are immensely messy and they depend on our understanding of the social order and of knowledge regimes and so forth. So I just want to talk about a few of the areas that I think we could look at and think about in the time that I have available. Um, we need to think about um, comparative political responses and how they've determined the shape of this pandemic. Uh, we have obviously in input from uh, virology, from epidemiology, and of course from those working on vaccines and so on. But the real question, it seems to me, is the different shape of political uh, cultures and how they create, um, how they influence and shape the direction of, of, of this pandemic. We have on the one hand authoritarian systems, China in particular, and how they have managed the crisis. We have democracies and they take different forms, uh, South Korea, Taiwan, New Zealand, uh, in Europe, uh, Germany, and perhaps most interestingly, Greece. Uh, extremely interesting, successful responses. We have very different versions obviously going on in Sweden. Um, the case of the Netherlands has been less attended to uh, as a kind of middle position. Um, at the same time, we have um, populist states, if we want to call it that. Um, India, for example, which was discussed very interestingly in a seminar that uh, Jane and her colleagues hosted yesterday. Hungary, notably. 
um, Brazil, uh, the United States, the UK, uh, where does the list end? We failed, I think, in general to learn valuable lessons um, from the global south on handling of pandemics in those situations, particularly, as I say, in relation to um, e Ebola. Um, but it's also going to play out and powerfully in, in unequal ways across the globe uh, with very vulnerable healthcare systems. That, I think, should galvanize our time and attention. In Ireland, there's a specific point about the two jurisdictions. Um, it's very interesting at the moment that Northern Ireland has announced a five-phase plan, which is rather close to the one in the Republic. Uh, at the beginning of the crisis, we were out of step with one another. That's an extremely difficult problem that raises uh, interesting questions about how borders function more generally. I mentioned inequalities, but they take lots of different forms, uh, particularly in terms of of racism and, and uh, death rates, which have received attention, particularly in the US and the UK. <clears throat> but I think also of the spaces that people occupy and their ability to deal with lockdown. Uh, family structures are an interesting question. There's been very little attention to it, but how do families um, with divorced parents, divorced or separated parents, how do they deal with this? How, do how are children asked to confront and deal with the separation of families under these conditions? I think there are pressing things that we need to look at going forward. And I think it's probably the case that for the humanities and social sciences in particular, we can take the long view. We're probably not first responders in an obvious sense. To a certain extent, the applied social sciences uh, would fall into that category. We are more looking at future consequences, directions and shapes of this. And that's where I think we can intervene most powerfully. But one of the obvious questions to think about is how are we gonna write the history of this crisis? Uh, I think that should also, by the way, include oral histories. Uh, we need to look at previous pandemics. And uh, frankly, if I had a, a simple piece of advice to policymakers, and I think some are joining us today, and some will no doubt look at this uh, afterwards, uh, the, best, the best thing that policymakers could have done, and I'm being only slightly facetious here, is to read Daniel Defoe's Journal of the Plague Year. I think all of the lessons are contained in that novel from 1720. This is the first uh, pandemic to occur in a social media era. I mean, David alluded to that, uh, but we need to study the shapes of communication at this time. Expertise has been alluded to. Uh, we need to think about information, truth, and trust, and how they function, about how the foundations of expertise have been eroded, but also how we consume expertise <clears throat> and who, is, who has access to the category of expert. The ethics of contact tracing in particular have naturally received a lot of attention. Um, but we need to think more carefully about philosophical issues more generally. One of them I think is uh, a somewhat elusive one, but I'll just mention it here, which is the kind of temporality of COVID-19. We've entered a kind of, there's before COVID and there's after COVID. Uh, this is a new, a new way of parsing time. There's a kind of phenomenology of this moment, and I think writers are particularly alert and astute in thinking their way through that experience. But it's also, as many people are trying to say and suggest, a time of change or perspective change. And how will we deal with the fact that, we, that things don't change if that's how it works out? Can we link this to climate change advocacy because we've suddenly realized and experienced a crisis which is transformative? Climate change is abstract in many ways. How does education work in this time period and how unequal is it in its distribution in terms of access to internet resources? Um, 
Technological solutionism, that's come into play, of course, in education, but also with contact tracing, which is wildly overstated in its potentiality. There still needs to, needs to be good old fashioned forms of contact tracing, if I can put it that way. At the same time, we've seen interesting reconnections with nature. Um, and I think a new opportunity to a kind of quality of attention that we can give to our immediate circumstances that I think probably all of us have found to be eroded in different ways. Um, we're also witnessing, of course, the framing of this um, moment in t difficult and problematic fashions about, uh, about a series of trade-offs. We have the economy versus health. We have the young versus the old. Um, can we resist these trade-offs? Can we think about their implications? These are fundamentally philosophical questions. I'm interested too, and also in narratives of crisis and how they've, how they've been shaped and told. What are the stories that are being told? Um, what is the, the use of metaphor in this time period is pretty striking. I mean, Boris Johnson is the great uh, fashioner of metaphors. I think in the end that he's probably the only sombrero that was flattened in the process, but his contributions have been noteworthy. We have new definitions of the essential and non-essential and of recognitions of, of workers and how they facilitate life and of how they engage in care and systems of care. And I think more generally that we're experiencing a kind of precarity that affects all of us. Now, some more deeply, more immediately than others. I don't want to uh, in any way um, diminish those different differences, but at the same time, we can share and experience this and hopefully draw on it uh, and mobilize ourselves in terms of a future action. So all of these things I think are areas, I've listed them serially partly because as I say, I think we need to be galvanized by topics, by areas of research, by areas where we can intervene. And I think that's the most important strategy that we could collectively. Uh, Thank you very much, Dan. Again, another um, three wonderful, wonderful presentations. So we're gonna now turn to Q&A. Uh, we have, as I say, 20 minutes to the hour, and then we'll take another 15. There's lots of questions coming in, lots of lovely positive comments as well. Those of you who are asking questions, I'll only use the Q&A function. Please don't put them in the chat. Keep the chat for sharing materials. Also, we won't take anonymous questions. The whole point of this conversation is to build community in this. Uh, uh, so please identify yourself. So let me just kick things uh, off here uh, with, there's a very, uh, uh, I'm saying the one, one to you, um, uh, uh, Gabby, or there was one to you a minute ago, wherever it's gone. Let me just find it. Um, sorry, the, okay, it's from uh, Despoina. Bull Golario, and apologies if I've mispronounced that, but the question, Gabby, is what are the tools you use to um, proact the interdisciplinary experts' database and projects? Uh, I, I think proact, I'm not sure what's meant there, but you know, talk about your tools, about how you, what tools you have and what tools you might like to develop. You just touched on them towards the end of your talk. Yeah, um, uh, first of all, in, there's a, a tools that not necessarily are mine. I mean, that we constituted this alliance uh, really to showcase uh, uh, as many uh, members of the community. And the alliance is made of both universities and not necessarily just social science humanities faculties, but university as a whole, like NTNU, for example, in Norway or um, Cork universities, which joined collectively all together. 
And the alliance also include uh, disciplinary associations, so Europeanly based, so the European Consortium of Humanities, for example, IESHIC, or and, and we also have, for example, the Irish Alliance uh, um, of Humanities and the uh, Academy of Social Science in UK. So it's a, it's a community, and we try obviously through the, the knowledge of our members so to bring it back. But actually for experts at the European Commission, for example, there's an open portal where people can just simply put their names through. Um, there are not many, and we need some capacity as an alliance to identify, to map who's doing what in order to provide to provide that knowledge straight where it matters. We want to be a little bit like a bridge between the community and the policy makers. Um, there are other tools, I mean, we can talk more, but I don't want to monopolize the questions. No, no, the first that's one. Great. I don't know if David or Dan want to come in on this, because I think it's such an important thing if we could all sign up and instead speak with one voice. It's a big, big challenge. But uh, it just if you can signal to me, guys, if you want to come in, if not, I'll move on to the next question, uh, which is from uh, Sindhu, uh, Sindhu Sankaran, who is an assistant professor of social, social psychology at the Institute of Psychology in Krakow in Poland. He's also an activist uh, working with refugees. And his question is actually, um, uh, you know, he's making observation that in times of COVID, this population has been ignored uh, as have other marginalized groups. In fact, that was the topic of the uh, 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 Rethinking Democracy uh, uh, meeting we had last week. Um, but his question for you guys is, how should uh, this information uh, be used in framing policy? In other words, what we do know um, about uh, uh, refugees. I think that's what he's trying to, to ask there. And it goes back to you, Dan, about the importance of focusing on topics rather than disciplines. Yeah, just to say, I noticed that uh, Sindhu is, is, is a she, has pointed out. Um, yeah, I mean, again, that link with policy, we're, we're not terribly skilled at that. And I think there are subgroups and sub areas where we do have successful interventions, particularly in relation to ethics and ethics of contact tracing. I think we can probably learn from colleagues who have simply more experience in that area. And naturally in the social sciences and particularly the applied social sciences, they have that, that kind of domain expertise. Uh, I think some of it is to, I hesitate to use the word simplifying arguments, but make, to make them more pointed, perhaps a more positive way of, uh, I think that is an exercise and challenge for us. And David made that point too, of not, not excessively complicating things for the, for, the, for the sake of it. There's a degree of unfairness there, but I think at the same time, we should try to be practical. Uh, but I think it's probably a, t a challenge for us and maybe organizations like EASH can help of, of kind of workshops or masterclasses and how to engage in, in policy formation because it is a new domain for, for many of us. Yeah, please go ahead, Gabby. And then David. I just want to say this, we're doing as a bit of an experiment, we became partners to this worldwide pandemic research network. Now we're not used to do research for a topic, um, we don't naturally do that, but if we can start creating some, uh, what I was saying earlier, some tools like this network could be where people can identify research, the, the social science humanities do, which address 
issues. So we really needed to be a little bit, to, to have some uh, translators of our research, which we haven't been particularly successful at doing. And so an intermediate space, which we think that we cover because our communication as social science humanities is great, but actually when it comes to the policy makers, it's a little bit uh, loose. And we miss that kind of uh, critical mass around uh, migration around um, any kind of topic we can think of even if it's the same people sometimes have a different or multiple topic which is very typical of our community mm. thank you uh, david sure no i i definitely would echo uh, the call for more uh, intermediaries and uh, and knowledge brokers also within uh, the ssh uh, or social science and humanities disciplines we we often tend to believe that we are experts in communication and that we are also very skilled in communicating uh, to the public and policymakers. But I think it also has to do with being pragmatic and being able to present our analysis or our interpretation, even if it is quite complex, in a way that's comprehensible and actionable. Because when you are invited to give advice to policymakers, you are normally not having 15 or or, or, or 24 months, you have 15 minutes or 24 minutes to, to, to deliver your expertise. So you have to be quite economical. And I say that, of course, with a lot of precaution, because this is definitely not an optimal world we are operating in, but it's, it's the ins and outs and it's the reality of, of policymaking. So I would echo that. I think it's the, the, the question about um, inequality is also interesting in this sense, uh, because uh, I, I do really firmly believe that a crisis like the one we are seeing unfolding right now is 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 definitely emphasizing and bringing out and even and even uh, accelerating some of the inequalities uh, that we have in our societies. Uh, you have Madonna uh, lying in her bathtub, uh, throwing rosen uh, uh, um, uh, blooms around, uh, and saying that the the COVID nineteen made us all equal because we can all apparently get it. Uh, and you can then compare that to, to the picture of illegal immigrants in, in New York that are not even able to be tested and, and uh, even less so to get treatment. Uh, but of course, there are many ways of uh, pronouncing a problem like that. Uh, one way would be for people like myself to go directly into an opinion piece in the national uh, newspaper and just speak it out loud and clear and pinpoint inequalities. That obviously will not be picked up by policymakers. That needs a different delivery mechanism where you're producing an analysis short and crisp. You're able to present the data, substantiate your argument, and, and then deliver it at the, right win, at, at the right time where there is an, a, a window open for the policymakers to actually comprehend uh, that perspective. I'm not saying that we in the SSH discipline should necessarily um, imitate the way uh, evidence from epidemiology or economics are being uh, transmitted to policymakers, but there are certain proven impact pathways that just work better. And we should be able to tap into that, what Gabby also said about the knowledge brokering, but do it in our own way. And then of course, as, as both Dan and also, I guess it was a piece a couple of years back by Andy Sterling, who said, keep it complex. Of course, we shouldn't compromise on our scholarly integrity and make and make pro social problems uh, less complex than they actually are but we should economize with the attention uh, span of of the policymakers we are engaging
Thank you very much. Again, fab fabulous responses to a great question. Um, can I turn actually to Doris Alexander, who I know is in the Zoom room. Doris, just to, why don't you ask your own question? So we're gonna actually spotlight you, Doris, if you wouldn't mind simply asking your own question. Certainly, thank you. Thank you, it's been a, a fabulous uh, presentation to date and really I've been taking some notes here as well. So a mention was made of the need to showcase how we can demonstrate the importance of arts, humanities and social scientists. I absolutely agree with that. But how can we do this and ensure that in a world that is, well, hopefully transitioning from COVID, that these disciplines and indeed these interdisciplines continue to be seen to be an important part of how we address solutions, actually not just for societal issues, but also for economic challenges and crisis. Thank you. Um, we'd like to start that one. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, because it, this, this is a real issue for us, for our community. Uh, we have a, a huge number of scholars across uh, just Europe. It's, we calculated, we estimate about a third of the research community is social science and humanities. And the numbers are multiplying because there are so many students taking social science humanities courses and many actually succeed. Um, in a career, in an academic career. Um, what we don't have is coherence. I'll give you a very practical example because I think if we, we can talk about theory a lot, but I mean, maybe it's better with a very practical example. Um, a, a few months ago, we had a whole discussion in the European Commission about European partnerships. So the Commission decided to shrink from over 100 European partnerships to just the 44, which eventually will become 47. Um, in the, there are loads of different types of European partnership in science and uh, there are only two, really two, which were social science humanities driven. Now, as an effort, as an issue, together with LERU, together with some other organization, university association, we're trying to gather some critical mass to see, okay, where do we need, where is the investment at the national level, which leverage across the two, three, four countries in topics where we can actually ask for a targeted European partnerships. The community was all over the place. We are famous to say, if you ask a three economists a question, you get five answers. Right, this is a need to be clarified. If we work at the European level, we need to have a better coherence of the feedback that we give on our things. It doesn't mean that everybody has to say the same thing. I'm not trying to homogenize everything. What I'm trying to say is that the community needs to dialogue more with each other and for example, we have many European associations. Now, the European Association of, I don't know, Anthropology, for example, which is extremely attractive, or the European Sociological Association, needed to tease out what are the pressing issues that could involve their community of research, so we can express things, express topics, and to introduce these topics into the mainstream of the funding. We are particularly bad at doing that. So, and if we don't feed the mainstream of research funding at the disciplinary level, at the topical level, we will not have the expertise at the other end to provide feedback and evidence at the policymakers. That's where the machine gets broken. We need to feed something coherent on one end, feedback and funded by the uh, 
ministry, national and in European uh, funding. And then we will build the expertise to respond to the question they have. Hope it's clear. <laughs> It is. Uh, thank you very much, uh, uh, Gabby. Would you, uh, David or Dan, want to come in there? Sure. David. Um, just to keep it brief, I, I think that's a very crucial point that we need to not only highlight the importance of speaking out and, and being included, but we also need the right incentives and the right infrastructure uh and the right type of uh investment to do it uh without those three uh uh factors it's, it's very very hard and i think especially in the humanities and social sciences we are often confronted with kind of unequal um competition because uh, first of all as i said before people just expect us to be good uh, knowledge brokers already given the fact that we are um uh from the humanities and social science that we are able to communicate that we are able to be part of the uh, of, of society and policy making which many of us are not i mean it takes skills it takes intermediaries it takes capacity building uh and and it takes a toll on your career i myself i mean i spent years advising governments in europe and the european commission and in denmark it takes time out it takes effort but it also requires a certain expertise and we need to provide that and then i also like gabby's idea about really institutionalizing it and not not as we're often in competition with let's say think tanks or advocacy groups but real knowledge transfer units at our universities funded by research councils and giving incentive so that we're really taking the impact agenda seriously and and promoting a, a type of, of uh, uh, scholarship that's really engaged in society and that is also being awarded when we are then down to tenure and promotion those type of nuts and bolts uh, i think could make a huge difference including obviously as gabby is doing a brilliant work uh, accomplishing also uh, uh, carrying this to the european commission thanks uh, uh, some of these issues we're seeing very much in the work that we're doing in shape id and obviously it's what you know the barriers are there the challenge is to find the right solutions dan do you want to come in here or can i move to the next question you can move ahead yeah okay and i actually want to move to the arts because shape id is all about arts humanities and social sciences and dan mentioned uh, the arts uh, but obviously david and gabby you're humanities and social science yet especially at moments of crisis uh, the arts are the early warning systems in any societies it's the canary in the mind in the mind uh, often the arts make audible what later becomes visible and i've got a lovely question here from Emilia Buriti from Greece. And she says, I am a visual and performance artist with experience in academic teaching. I'm working with art and, art, art and agriculture. How do you see the role of art in this complex situation? So maybe I'll start with Dan, but obviously if um, David or Gabby want to come in too, Dan. Yeah, thank you for that question. This is extremely important and I should have tried to say more about it. One of the things I'm interested in is, is even the kind of definitions of culture and art that have been operative during the crisis. And I think that's, that's an area that we could probably collectively work on. It's often treated as a kind of palliative, um, that this is, um, it kind of gets us through, it's, it's, it's entertainment in that sense, that it psychologically helps us. 
but there must be a deeper understanding of art and culture in this moment. These are the meaning creating uh, domains within human experience, but also often the, 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 those who are the finest attuned to human experience and to imagining alternative possibilities and, and forging links between different human communities. I, that's a more powerful definition of how art and culture can function at this time. I think that there probably is uh, a kind of parallel exercise, if I can put it that way, to be, to be had along the lines of what Gabby was sketching, of trying to draw together all of these contributions. Now, some of them will, will still exist on YouTube and other forms afterwards, but, but I wonder if there's some, there's some pan-European organization that could draw together people in Greece and elsewhere who have tried to make powerful interventions and where we can try to aggregate this because it, it isn't just getting us by, it's, it's providing a powerful set of relationships uh, in this period of time. Can I, can I come in on this? And, okay, I've got two, two issues. One is a very political one. Uh, creative arts are in undoubtedly the, uh, one of the fastest growing industry in Europe. It's, it's been growing faster than uh, cars, for example. And uh, we don't take advantage of that. Um, we have to understand that the science policy and investment in research and development is pretty much driven by this relationship between public and private funding. And we don't intervene in this whole politics because we think that we dirty our hands. Actually, this is exactly what it matters. It matters a lot that the creative industry, which is a fast growing industry, which is actually producing a massive output and it's got lots of startups and lots of SMEs and really a, a very fast and healthy actually industry. We as a researcher do not capitalize from the link between what this industry produces and what we actually produce in our research. Gaming industry at the moment is booming and it's booming on the back of historical research, archival <laughs> backgrounds. I mean, we needed these links to be much tighter because then the industry will lobby for investment in this research because they need this research. Um, they have been digitalized all the archives of Venice, for example, and the, one of the results was a fantastic tourist tour, virtual tour across Venice in 16th century. Another side of the story is a production of games based on the 16th century Venice. Now, let's capitalize on these things, but we, do not, we are not organized, we can't do that. Um, to respond to Dan, there is an, some organization around museum art galleries and um, cultural heritage in the sense of culture and not in the sense of technology and nanotechnology and chemistry because the cultural heritage has both um, perspectives. And they have been doing quite a lot. And in fact, one of the intervention areas of the future work, uh, pro, uh, framework program for funding in Europe has as an intervention areas cultural heritage. We need to make sure there's got culture as much as it's got technology and nanoscience in it. Okay, but, but we needed to work through platforms, lobby platforms. At the moment, the issue pretty much is lonely in there in this space when i sit at the table i'm pretty much alone and there are very few other people actually talk about these things luckily i've been made some good arguments in case and i managed to get something through but we have to be more than just one and we no, need no, no. better coordination i absolutely agree gabby and i'm hoping that shape id can make some very 
powerful interventions around this integration that we need uh, uh, with the arts. Uh, David, I don't know, will we move on to the next question? Yeah, you don't want to come in on the arts here? Sure, no, move on please. Okay, well actually brings me to technology. Um, and the question is from uh, Philip uh, Widmer, uh, who's joining us from Klosters in Switzerland. Um, his question is, we've become more reliant on cooperations in the tech sector. How can we improve cooperation between the private and the public sector, especially in the light of contact tracing um, and the issues uh, that we've seen in Germany with Apple. So it takes us into that transdisciplinary space as well. Maybe David, do you want to, to begin to answer that? Well, sure. I mean, I, I don't think this, this question is probably not particular to the social sciences and humanities, but it, it, it might pose special uh, opportunities. I, you know, it, it is quite important, and it was also said by Gabby, uh, touching upon the whole mission approach to research and, and innovation, that we need now in the coming years to form larger partnerships and alliances across society. And it's quite important that we are not um, excluding, obviously, industry and companies, and that we are also not being too reliant on uh, technological uh, solutions or solutionism, as, as Dan said. Um, uh, there is right now some quite interesting discussions going on about uh, about artificial intelligence and about uh, also the tech industry, uh, as you just alluded to, uh, Jane, about, about how much can we actually capitalize on technologies and what are the limitations of technologies right now. Uh, a lot of governments around the world are actually uh, choosing a different uh, route around uh, testing. Uh, and about contract uh, contract uh, tracing, uh, rather than using technologies, they're now starting to use or going back to using ordinary analog uh, human-based work. Uh, not only because of various on, on privacy, but also because it might prove more solid and, and more robust. And a lot of the behavior that we are seeing right now emerging in Denmark, for example, everybody is buying up summer houses which is uh, according to all economic textbooks, something that you would not see happening because people would sit on their money and they would save their money, but people are spending them like mad right now. Uh, you know, it's, it's breaking up the notion of, of homo economicus in, in, our, in, in, in a lot of the economic theory. Uh, you know, how can we, how can we use these, uh, let's say, phenomenon to create better models, better data and, and better collaborations also with the industry. I think this is something we also have to think carefully about when, when we are writing the history that, um, you know, often we are just feeding algorithms with, uh, with uh, past performance, with past data, but now it suddenly looks like we are actually going to feed them with some quite disruptive uh, performances, uh, human performances and, and new types of, of, of behavior. That's going to be a problem for some of the companies. They're going to, they're going to have to adjust their models uh, to the way we are using technologies in new ways. But obviously, even as a, even as a, 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 a humanities scholar with a background in philosophy, I would at, at no point uh, abandon technology. It needs definitely to be part of the solution, but again, should be embedded in our social value systems and in our understanding of human cognitive behavior. Yeah. Thank you very much, David. I'm conscious it's one o'clock. We are losing some people from the Zoom room, but there's still well over a hundred people. So I think we will go into that 10 minutes. There's lots and lots of questions. Before I move on to the next one, um, I don't know if, if Gabby or Daniel want to come in under technology. It doesn't look like as if you do. Daniel, yes, very quickly. No, let's move ahead. 
Okay, let me go to the next question, which is from Mark Van Holschbeck, who's the Director of Scientific Research at the Ministry of Wallonia Brussels Federation and Professor of Science Communication at ULB. Uh, and he says, I'm worried about the way the notion of targeted impact will be framed in Horizon Europe. It looks like it may be quite linear and make it difficult to integrate the more qualitative or critical potential contribution from uh, uh, SSH. And I'd like to say ASSH here, if I may, uh, uh, Mark. Um, any thoughts on this? Um, in, in, uh, Gabby, maybe start with you. I thought we would start with Mark, with David, because David is an expert in that. But, oh, is he? Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> hey, do you want to go ahead or shall I start it? And then well, go ahead and then we'll turn to David. Okay. Well, we've been working a lot with the European Commission about this concept of impact and we did publish a position paper on pathway to impact and we've been discussing about how uh, impact that should be understood. It is true that in the narrative seems to be quite linear and we are having conversation which sometimes I have to say it kind of be disheartening because <laughs> no matter we, we seem to understand each other then they go back into a, a kind of an habit of uh, understanding things in a very simple linear way. On the other hand there is a, the emergency of um, what we've been talking about is um, when we talk about funded research, and let's be clear about this, when we talk about funded research, we have a funder, someone who put the money on the table, and is trying to achieve something. So we've been saying in our, some of our position papers, don't look at the impact of every single project. In three years or five years, the impact will be whatever the impact could be. What you need to look at is why you're funding a program, and if a, a, a number of projects have achieved the target and the impact should be judged on that context. There has to be an understanding of why we put money for research and if we fund the research, they actually achieve what we want to achieve. It's as simple as that. If I pay money for a coat, I want to come back home with a nice coat. And it's a big mistake about the impact story when we keep saying, oh, um, there's, there's a very silly uh, strong story they had. I said, the person who buy the coat, and then a friend said, oh, you got a beautiful coat. Um, how much did you spend? And I said, 100 euros. So why did you spend so much? Oh, I don't know. I'm not gonna, I'm gonna ask, I'm gonna ask the shopkeeper. Well, actually the shopkeeper sold the research, sold, sold the coat. It's up to you, they pay the money to understand why you pay those money. So the impact story actually should be told by those who invest the money, to be honest. And the researcher needs to understand why they're contributing to it, has to be framed in a context, but the end of the story has to be told by those who invested the money and benefit from the research they invested. Right? Thank you, Gabby. Great. Uh, David, thank you. <laughs> Yeah, sure. Uh, <laughs> Gabby answered it. Many of you will know, including Mark and uh, and other listeners here, uh, there is no easy answer to that uh, to that question. I think um, to to answer it, I mean, uh, what we have been seeing for the last, let's say, two or three years, is really the impact agenda emerging as a key European uh, priority. Uh, it was one of the, the 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 key kind of driving forces behind Carlos Moeda's uh, tenure as a commissioner of research, 
and it's definitely being carried forward now in Horizon Europe. And, and, uh, and a lot of European scholars, uh, including SSH, but also STEM disciplines, are getting used to um, uh, understanding, capturing, tracing, uh, showcasing uh, their impact. Uh, here, really, the UK has taken a lead uh, due to the REF. Uh, but other methodologies and other and, and 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 other strategies might be adopted at the European level. So we are still in the early stages of the impact agenda, Mark. And I think as we have been doing it at the Vienna conference and at a ton of other conferences and workshops, uh, many of us are trying to um, exert influence um, on the Commission and on national governments and research councils and foundations to not adapt to a narrow concept of, of impact. But again, keep it complex, perhaps not too complex because policymakers do not like that, but complex enough so that we capture uh, some of the dynamic effects of research that we want to capture, as Gabby also said. Uh, unfortunately, I, I do agree with the comments by Mark that the critical potential, the full uh, suite of uh, different disciplinary um, strategies adopted by SSH will not be accounted for in, in, in a lot of these impact indicators or, or impact paragraphs, but we can do a better job than only to imitate the existing impact regime of patents, licenses, royalties, uh, uh, industry collaboration, and, and fortunately, we are we are seeing some progress in, in in this space at the moment. Okay, thank you very much, David. D Dan, uh, oh, I move on. I just want to add something quickly. Uh, quickly. I mean, it might be a way of breaking down the to a certain extent the qualitative quantitative uh, opposition is to try to aggregate qualitative stories, uh, and I think there's a, there's a case study modality which we're familiar with, but we can aggregate case studies. We might tell a powerful story. I just wanted to say briefly, if you, look at, uh, if you look at the major changes in Ireland over the last few years, what do they relate to? They relate to the repeal of the Eighth Amendment and the uh, equality of marriage legislation. These are massive areas of social impact that have come through major changes of thinking socially, and we're part of that story. So maybe we have to do that on that larger scale that we all collectively have a stake in. Thanks, Dan. Um, I, I'd like to now turn to the audience for our last question. So uh, uh, Julia Sanetti was part of the Turin Learning Case Workshop. Julia, you have a, a question. Uh, you're part of the Trust uh, Project, uh, which is a very fascinating one as well. But are you still with us? Would you like to ask your question? Julia? Hello. Can you hear me? We can hear you. Hi. Please go ahead. Yeah. Thank you. So my question you have to Okay, if you have to suggest to policymakers and enter this narrative, uh, a a practical tool, uh, a, an object, a service that can help policymakers uh, in engaging more with AASSH, what what do you like to propose? Um, I know that it's a bit like uh, blinking the eye to the efficiency and effective narrative that is uh, so dear to scientists and technologists and engineers. But if you had to talk their language, would you would would you like to propose to them? Thanks very much, uh, Julia. Dan, do you want to start the conversation there, and then we'll use this question to wrap things up. We can't hear you, Dan. You're muted. I have a quick suggestion. 
which is that we can ask uh, policymakers to participate in panel discussions and to chair sessions. One of the values of getting people to chair sessions is they have to listen to what people say in order, as Jane has brilliantly done here, to, to weave and navigate through the conversation. So it's just a little bit of a, a, an un, unusual suggestion maybe that we might use to develop our pot potential to communicate. But a very useful one, a very practical one. Uh, uh, Gabby, what about you? And then David, I, I think it'd be nice to everybody to, to have a crack at this one to finish up. Well, I, th this is part of my job or my daily job to um, uh, kind of a leverage between what the research community does and what the policymaker are looking for within the community. Um, it's, so as Dani correctly said, the more present in the panels, but also more present on social science in other contexts. So I, I've been participating in, for example, a fascinating workshop, engineers only, about complex dynamics. And their focus was about resilience. And their major problem about resilience was the human factor. The person will stick the fingers in the machine and mess it up. <laughs> we need actually to have that kind of a, a co-participation co in that sense. And if you're talking about a tool, a tool that needs uh, to be uh, something to be more organized. One of the reasons why the, the platform of the European Alliance of Social Science and Humanities exists is really to have a bit more organized feedback about a number of, we have specialized on science policy, so a number of policy issues. Um, that's actually our research cost less. We really don't need the infrastructure. Is that, I mean, having a coordinating answer to the policymaker for designing the machine, which fund all science and all research and all disciplines. We need some coherent feedback from a community which comes from the community and leave to where the design for the science policy, the design for the funding is made. Thanks, Gabby. I'm going to just wrap it up. And David, final word to you. Thank you very much, though. I, I do not have much uh, to, to, add, to add to those brilliant points. Uh, if I may, I will end on a, on a personal uh, uh, observation or note here. Um, Unfortunately, one of our good colleagues in the SSH impact space, uh, Paul Benworth, passed away uh, yesterday. And I just wanted to take the opportunity here to really honor his memory and uh, encourage all our listeners to go look up his work. He's been a leading inspirational voice in the SSH community and a very good and dear colleague and friend. So uh, I wanted to uh, end there. Well, thank you very much, David. And um, we should put that in the chat function to allow people to follow up as well. But thank you very, very much. So before we thank our speakers in the customary way, we still have a lot of people in the Zoom room, which is telling me that we, sh you know, a, a, an hour just wasn't long enough. We're going to send out um, a, a quick survey uh, just to get your feedback on the webinar. Uh, uh, so it'll only take you five minutes. But we're also looking for ideas about what other webinars you'd like to see happen over the coming uh, weeks but also to get your views on some of the barriers and some of the solutions and how we can best disseminate and share some of the findings with Shape ID. So we'd really appreciate it if you would fill out the survey. I know everybody hates surveys, but it would be fantastic if you did. Um, we uh, also would like to invite you to follow us on Twitter and on Facebook. Um, there are lots of amazing events going on in the arts, humanities and social science space at the moment as we all respond to COVID-19. 
obviously we in the Trinity Long Room Hub are doing a lot uh, and that's on our website. I know Dan at the Moore Institute is also. Uh, so I, I think it's very important that our voices are heard. This is clearly the beginning of a conversation. And as I say, judging by the excellent questions and interventions, there are a lot of people who want to be part of it. So can I just simply end by thanking you all for attending uh, uh, this uh, webinar. It's just been so insightful. Uh, and that's, of course, thanks to the amazing panel uh, that we have had. You guys have just been absolutely fabulous. Lots of rich, uh, uh, provocative uh, insights and uh, we look forward to continuing the conversations. So just a, also a quick thank you to Darren, uh, the team in Dublin who have uh, made this run so smoothly technically. But if you could ultimately join with me and in the customary fashion, thank our amazing uh, panelists uh, one last time before we leave so thank you very very much um, um so goodbye everybody and we look forward to seeing you again uh, soon hopefully in person but i suspect it'll be online uh, before it's in person and thank you again uh, for just such a cracking set of conversations bye-bye Thanks, the Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures, stamping provenance towards the history to of the Time of the Year Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space contemplating Ireland through the communities this created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. The rise of feminism. Here's to the next 10 years.